guys loving Jesus? Amen. I love that song. I can never get tired of asking the Lord to baptize us. Amen. Wonderful. Let's open up our Bibles to Zechariah chapter 2. Continuing that series that I felt the Lord put on my heart. Zechariah chapter 2. Today's message is entitled, Emmanuel, God with us. And as I was sharing with you before, that when the Lord put Zechariah on my heart, I believed it was for two reasons. Number one, to have an inroad to reach Muslims because uh, Zechariah is a prophet that they recognize. And number two, that Zechariah contains a lot of promises about the Messiah. And what do we call promises that deal with the Messiah? Yes, messianic promises or messianic prophecies. Wonderful. And so this book has really encouraged me. Now, last week's message really had nothing to do with either. And a lot of you told me that you appreciated that message, and especially church in the Sunday school when I taught it to them. They said that they really loved that message. Um, and let me just give you a little history of the, uh, the prophet Zechariah so you can understand where he's coming from. Because there's a third lesson that I believe God wanted me to study this for. And that is to see the restoration of the church like Zechariah was preaching the restoration of the house of Israel. So let me just give you some fun facts about Zechariah. If you haven't taken Old Testament survey, if you had, uh, I love keeping those books around. You can just look up a, uh, a prophet or a book of the Bible and you can learn about it. Uh, Zechariah was written sometime around 520 B.C., and he is writing to the people who are held in captivity, the house of Judah in Assyria. <clears throat> His name, Zechariah, means the Lord remembers. And Zechariah's primary focus is to prepare the people to come back to Israel and also to, uh, back to Jerusalem and to build the temple and to remind them of their forefathers' sins. And you have to remember that Zechariah is most likely a second-generation captivity person. He probably never lived in Jerusalem himself. Remember, Daniel said that Jeremiah prophesied 70 years of captivity, and that came to be true. And as the Babylonians uh, were overtaken by Persia, Cyrus became the new uh, leader of the, um, the world at that time. And so Cyrus allowed the Jews to come back to Jerusalem. And many times uh, we ask ourselves, why would they allow that to happen? Well, in, in my Old Testament survey class in seminary, uh, learning about why Cyrus probably allowed the Jews to come back, the reason was is that Cyrus was a polytheist and he believed in a lot of gods. And he believed that if you gave people their gods, their culture, their land, that they would better serve his kingdom and his world empire. So his motive was selfish, but it turned out for the goodness of God because this way the people could come back to the land of Israel. And then they lived under that land all the way into the captivity of Jerusalem again under the uh, Roman Empire. Roman uh, Empire sacked Jerusalem in 70 AD and then dispersed the Jews. And they were dispersed until after uh, World War II when they came to occupy the land again in 1948, thus fulfilling prophecy. So Zechariah is talking about the returning after captivity back to the land of Israel. 
And he's teaching the people their lessons that they should have learned from their forefathers being in captivity. And that's why last week's lesson was, return to me and I will return to you. That's the simple word. He says I, uh, God was angry with the forefathers of Israel. They disobeyed God. They didn't follow God's commands. And God kept telling them, turn, turn away from evil. Don't do it. Like Jeremiah, like uh, Joel, these prophets came and they did not listen. Even the house of Judah did not listen. And after the tribes of Israel got invaded by Assyria some 200 years later, because remember that Assyria took over the 10 tribes of Israel in 700 B.C. And it wasn't but a few hundred years later in 500 B.C. that then Babylon takes over Judah. And so you see that God has punished both of those divided kingdoms all for the same reasons, their idolatry, their pagan worship. Now, a good thing to note is that after they came back from captivity, the Jews never gave into idolatry again. And to this day, they are not into idolatry. That's why when you see Jesus come on the scene, the Pharisees are there. These guys are about ready to stone Jesus. Why? Because he's blaspheming, making himself out to be God. Because that's how uh, strong they became in following the Torah and the law. And just a little side note that you'll learn in intertestamental times, and that is right after the book of Malachi, which is a peer of Zechariah, right after they came back and rebuilt the temple, there's those 400 years of biblical silence. But what's going on there is there's the uh, raising up of a Jewish nation and trying to revolt and take back control. And they do for a little bit during the Maccabean revolt and they take over and rule their land. And it's called the Hesmonian dynasty and they rule their land for a little bit. But then they get subjugated again under the Romans. And what does that tell us is that when Jesus came on the scene as the Messiah, these Jewish people were hungry for the Davidic king to conquer and make Jerusalem the central of the world again. You see, they had already gone through hundreds of years of captivity. Think to yourself, 700 B.C., Israel falls to Assyria. Then 500 B.C., Jerusalem falls to Babylon. Then for 400 years, they're fighting and they're trying to gain their own independence. Then Jesus comes on the scene some 700 years later of being an occupied land, being captive and going back and forth with rulers in their land. And here comes Jesus. Why do you think they were so excited? Hosanna, Hosanna, you know, throwing out the palm branches because they wanted Jesus to be the king and to redeem them. But Jesus had a plan of salvation. And what you're going to learn that in Zechariah, these messianic prophecies are some of the strongest. As a matter of fact, they're the most in number for the size of the book. Isaiah may have a few more. Psalms may have a few more. But Zechariah, with only being the few chapters, it's less chapters in Isaiah, less chapters in Psalms, is power packed with messianic prophecies. In today's message, I want to focus in on how Zechariah, some 500 years even before the coming of Christ was prophesied, not only would Jesus come, but Jesus also had a plan for the nations, not just to come and be a conquering king and destroy everybody. Because remember, if Jesus would have came the first time and been the conquering king, you and I would not be a part of that kingdom. Are you listening to me? We're not Jewish descent. 
Nobody in this class is. Maybe somebody by internet is. But nobody here. Okay? The Indians living in South America, we would have been judged with hellfire. Okay? The Europeans and the pagans of the other nations, Nancy from Greece, my heritage from, from Italy, we would have been judged. Okay? So you're going to see here that Zechariah not only promised that the Messiah would come, but that the Messiah would bring the nations to God. So now let's look at Zechariah chapter 2. If you're there in the passage of Scripture, say, I'm there. Zechariah chapter 2 is a short chapter, so we'll be able to read the whole thing today, which I, I generally like to do during our times of series. And as we're getting ready to read this, I just want to encourage you to read it during the week to study. And I know you're studying a plethora of things, but try to keep up in the series and read with me in the chapter ahead, like chapter 3 and 4. Chapter 2 of Zechariah. Then I looked up, and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. I asked, what are you, where are you going? He answered, to measure Jerusalem to find out how wide and how long it is. The angel who was speaking to me left, and another angel came to meet me and said to him, Run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. So here you have a promise that he's saying you're not even going to have a need a city with walls because I myself am going to be a wall unto you. Now, you know that literally they then began to build a wall with Nehemiah. The book of Ezra is all about restoring the Jewish people and the Jewish faith in the land of Jerusalem, finding the book of the law, reading it out to the people. And that's restoring the Jerusalem faith to Israel. And Nehemiah is building the wall. OK, is building the wall. Ezra comes and builds the temple and, and, and makes church happen again for them. And then Nehemiah builds the wall. If you want to know, Ezra and Nehemiah are peers here with Zechariah and Malachi. And Haggai. Okay, so he's saying you're not even going to need a wall because I'm going to live there and there's going to be so much livestock and the glory of the Lord's going to be there. But just think to yourself right now, did that happen when they came into that place? No. Did that happen when they came in, you know, uh, around 500 BC? Did they have a city without walls? No, they had a city with walls. Was the glory of the Lord evidence there? No. You can read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. It doesn't say that the glory cloud came down or that fire came down like it was in uh, the time of Solomon. So what you're learning right here is not only is this a messianic prophecy that Jesus is going to fulfill. This is a prophecy, pro- prophecy dealing with the second coming of Jesus. This is the second coming. And now this brings to another fun fact. Revelation takes more of its imagery and more of its symbols and more of its language from Zechariah than any other book in the Bible. After Zechariah, it's the book of Daniel. But Zechariah comes first, this little book that not many of us knew or know very well. You're learning about this, that right here, this imagery is telling you that there is going to be a kingdom. It's going to be on earth. A lot of people think we'll be in heaven forever. We're only in heaven temporarily until the battle of Armageddon. Then the kingdom is on earth. And then we rule and reign on the new earth with the new Jerusalem for eternity. That's what this is prophesying. A new Jerusalem. A new Jerusalem. You turn to the book of Revelation and you realize this, that this city has the glory of the Lord surrounding it. Yes, it has walls made of jasper and all of that. But what defines that city? It's the glory of God. 
And you didn't see that when they went back in 500 A.D. with, ne- with Nehemiah. But keep reading. That's not the text for today. But that's interesting. Very good to note that. Verse 6, come, come, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have scattered you to the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. Come, O Zion, escape you who live in the daughter of Babylon, for this is what the Lord Almighty says. After he has honored me and has sent me against the nations that have plundered you, for whoever touches you touches the apples of his eye, the apples of the apple of his eye, I will surely raise my hand against them so that their slaves will plunder them. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. Now it goes right back into the time where they're living in. They're going to come from the people, uh, the places of Babylon. They're going to all come from the north and they're going to dwell back in the land of Israel. And if people try to stop this from happening, that God will then allow calamity to come upon those nations. And as you read about the time of Nehemiah when they're trying to rebuild and come back to Jerusalem, people try to afflict them and God defends them because they're coming back to that land. But not only at this time do they come from the north, but do you know also that after World War II, that when the Jews were given back their homeland in 1948, they were coming from the north because they were in Russia and they were in Germany and they were in these lands that would be north of them. So not only is it speaking of them coming back to the land during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, but also coming back to the land where I believe they are today. And it also applied that if anybody stopped the Jews from coming, God began to resist and work against them. If the Russians began to, to resist the Jews leaving, God began to strike the Russian economy, began to strike these Russian nations that they themselves were not kind to the Jews. And the Germans, you know what happened to them? They got defeated in war. And so you, when you read the Bible, you can see that prophecy sometimes plays an immediate role. Sometimes it plays a future role. And you can see two ways that this prophecy is being fulfilled. Is anybody learning something today? Just out the book of Zechariah this morning. Still not even to the text. Praise God. Let's keep going. Now verse 10. Here we come to the text. Shout and be glad. Hallelujah. O daughter of Zion. For I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Somebody say Emmanuel. Somebody say like you're up this morning. Emmanuel. Say God with us. You see right there, the promise, the promise, the prophecy comes as a promise. Shout and be glad, O daughter Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. You see, there it is. Many nations. You see, that had to freak out the Jews right there. You see, they didn't understand it. You see, Davi, by the time Jesus came around, he was having his mind on nations. But they kept wanting just to have a Jewish state. And that's why they missed him. Because he had to redeem the world through his sacrifice. For God so loved the world. Who is he telling that to? Where is John 3 found in the context? To Nicodemus. He's saying, hey, I don't just love you guys. I love the world. Oh, I wish I had amen on that. Are you happy that Jesus loves you? I mean, don't have me go back to Psalms and talk about how Jesus and the Father thought about wicked, sinful nations that you and I were a part of. Aren't you glad that there's a mediator now and that there's a plan of redemption? Because if we would have been dealt with back then according to our ways, none of us would be here except the Jewish people. Because Jesus came from the line of David. They thought he's just going to save them. But here is the prophecy found some 500 years before Jesus. I will come and live among you. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day. 
and will become My people. I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent Me to you. The Lord will inherit Judah as His portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because He has roused Himself from His holy dwelling. So let's talk about what this means to us and what it meant to them when He came and lived among them. Go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. He said, I am going to come and live among you. This has to infer the Trinity. And we'll get to that in our passage in John chapter 1. But this has to infer the Trinity, the God triune nature. Because if you go back to Moses, and as as you'll see requoted in John, no one has seen God and lived. But yet you'll see that Moses talked to God face to face. Yet Abraham uh, had a dinner with God, the Lord Jehovah, on the plains of Mamre in Abraham, uh, in Abraham chapter 18 and Genesis chapter 18. So what's going on here? If no one can see God and live and yet God is meeting with people, who are they seeing? They are seeing Jesus, the pre-incarnate uh, Jesus, which is called a Christophany. Christophany, Jesus showing up before He comes in the flesh. Now, why is that important to know in our theology? Because people like Muslims, like Jews, they tell us that the Trinity is a Christian invention taken from pagans. But that is not true. Here's the evidence right here. God says, I'm going to be among you. But the Father is holy. He dwells in perfect light. There is no darkness. How is Jesus going to come in a place of darkness? How is, I mean, how is God going to come in a place of darkness? How is God going to walk among sin when He Himself is holy? Unapproachable, the Bible says. You see, you have to understand that God is in a triune nature. Father, Son, Holy Ghost. And it's not just taught in the New Testament. It's the fulfillment in the New Testament of Old Testament prophecies. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. I'm going to say it again so you can catch it. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed in prophecy and in imagery. Daniel sees a vision, one like the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days, receiving worship and kingdoms. Then he says, my vision disturbed me. Why? Because he had just saw the manifestation of the triune God. You see, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. But the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. The curtain is taken away. The blinders are lifted off like the Bible says because of Christ's death. Now we can see and behold it even though in a glass dimly we're seeing it more and more and more going from glory to glory to glory. Understanding who God is. He's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And if you want to see a debate on that, go to our website, click on our old videos and watch the debate this past Wednesday about us debating the Trinity. Because the Trinity is important. Now look at Matthew chapter 1 verse 23 and start to get the understanding here of what this is meaning to the people of Jesus' time. You know, the, the birth of Jesus, the Christmas story, what, what significance His name even has. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. There it is. There is the fulfillment of the prophecy. He is not a prophet with us. He is not representing God with us. He is. He, when you see Jesus, when you see the child that comes from your womb, Mary, when you see Him, you're seeing God with you. 
Because He's taking on flesh and dwelling among us. Now go to John chapter 1 where I want to spend a little bit more time developing what's known as the hypostatic union. Hypostasis, talking about nature or personhood. And the hypostatic union is when the person of the Son takes on flesh and forever identifies in His nature as the God-man. This is significant to Christian theology because if He is not God, then He did not redeem us. A prophet, a person could not redeem us. God Himself had to redeem us. Going back to the time of the sacrifice of Isaac with Abraham on the mountain, God came and said, Jehovah Jireh, I my Myself will provide the lamb. I myself will come and be the lamb. That's what he's saying in that passage in uh, uh, Genesis when Isaac is about ready to be sacrificed, symbolizing the firstborn, representing Jesus coming in the flesh. Now look at John chapter 1. Get the revelation here of what's happening, being prophesied, like I said, 500 years beforehand in the book of Zechariah. How many love learning about Jesus in the Bible? Come on, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And what you learn right here is that God has to be the person of the Father, because when it says in the beginning was the Word, that's a person, and the Word was with God, the Word has to be a separate person than the God mentioned there, because we learned Wednesday in the debate that pros means face to face, that the person of the Word, one object, is facing another object, God. But then we learn in the next passage that He Himself is God. So does that mean He Himself is the same person as in the verse uh, the section before no what it means is is that when you have Veils, which is O-S ending, as you guys are learning. It's in the nominative form. It is the subject. And then you have Logos. It is also the subject. You have two subjects, Logos and Theos. But how do you know which one is the subject and which one is the predicate nominative that uh, modifies that noun? By knowing the article. So the Jehovah Witnesses say, oh, Theos doesn't have an article. So that means you say in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Because Theos doesn't have an article. It doesn't say the God. But here Here's the problem. It purposely doesn't have the article because if it would have the article, then it would mean this. The logos, the word is in every form God. And that's not what it's saying, because in the in the section before it's saying that the word and God are two separate persons facing each other. So when it doesn't have the article before theos, what it's saying is theos now is a predicate nominative to the subject logos, which is saying what God is in all of his fullness, the logos is. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God in his nature. That's what it means literally, God in his nature. You guys could say amen, and you don't believe it if you don't, and if you don't study it, okay? You just, you just came to school in chapel, is that all right? You see, what you have to understand is that this is very important in the New Testament, is that it is differentiating the person of the Father and the Son. And you might say, well, Pastor, I don't know if I understand that. Go down now to John 1.18. It makes perfect sense. Otherwise, it would have contradicted itself because John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God. Well, if the Word is everything God is and God is everything the Word is and they're the identical person, then I thought I did see God. I saw God on the plains of Mamre, Abraham could say. I thought I did see God, Moses said. I talked to face to face. But you look at it right here. No one has seen God but God the the one and only Theos Magnus, the one and only, the one who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So right there, 
Father is introduced to you as the term meaning God, differentiating the Word from God, meaning the Word is not the Father, the Father is not the Word, because you've never seen the Father, but you've seen the only begotten Son, the Word. Because He, look at verse 14, now that I just explained that, go in order. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. That word dwelling literally means He pitched His tent alongside of us. He came and got the condo right next to us. He made His dwelling with us. Does that sound familiar going back to Zechariah chapter 2? He says, I am coming and I will live among you. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. And there's the promise. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Somebody say, Emmanuel, God with us. You see, the distinction that you learn right here is that the Father cannot be the Son and the Son cannot be the Father. They have to be distinct persons, but they are in the same nature God. They are in the same nature divine. But you've never seen the Father. I've never seen the Father. The apostles never saw the Father. But who did they see? They saw Jesus who came from the bosom of the Father, who is of the same nature as the Father. And therefore, when Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he's saying in the person of the Son is all the substance that is in the Father. Y'all getting a little confused, but let me help you out a little bit. Now go to Colossians. Somebody say, help me understand, Jesus. Come on, I want you to give a little bit more clarity. I know John is deep, but I'm going to give you one more. Colossians chapter 1. And I want you to see how this complements each other because, number one, the Trinity is not just a side issue. It is an important doctrine that every Christian must know. Why? Because it's who your God is. And if you don't understand who your God is, then you will not understand how to preach about your God and teach about your God. And then you won't understand what the Old Testament says about your God. You'll read Zechariah and go, oh, that's cute. God's going to come live among us. No, you have no idea what that means. You tell that to a Jew right now. God is going to walk among you, step on the same streets you step on. They're going to say, that's blasphemy. He can't do that. God is the Spirit. God dwells in unapproachable light. God is holy and perfect. How could God come down here? This was the same thing Muslims say. How could God be here and hung, be hungry, use the bathroom, you know, be mistreated and spit upon? God can never do that. Why? Because they're associating everything with God only to the person of the Father. They don't know that the Son can take on flesh and be here with us as He did. Now go to Colossians 1. If you're there, say, I'm there. Look at verse 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 15. Chapter 1, verse 15 of Colossians. He, talking about Jesus, is the image, hello, of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So He is the image. So when people see God, they see the image of who? Jesus. When Moses saw God, what image did he see? Jesus. Come on. When Gideon saw the angel of the Lord, also a Christophany, who did he see the image of? Jesus. When Jesus appears, or I should say when the Lord appears to Abraham, what image did he have? Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. See, God's invisible. Well, we saw Jesus. Why? Because he took on flesh. And before he took on flesh, he would come down in the form of man. That is called a Christophany. Why? Because Christ would appear in the form of man. Before he took on flesh. Now look, keep, keep reading. Verse 16. For by him all things were created. We learned that in John. 
Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. See, He has to be deity because He can't be created and having things for Him unless He was God. The Jehovah Witnesses want to say He's a less, lesser deity, but a deity nonetheless. There cannot be two deities. That's polytheism. And then number two, there can be no deity that creates and gets worship and has all things created for Him. Even if they use the lie and say Jesus was the Father's agent and the Father gave Him all that authority, that is still blasphemy and that is still polytheism. It doesn't matter if there's another God that God Himself created. He said in Isaiah, there was no God before Him, before me, nor would there be one after me. That's Isaiah 43. So he says that this is who he is. He's done all of this. Now, verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things are held together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. Now, look at verse 19. For God was pleased to have some of his fullness dwell in him. Is that what it says, Jaron? It says it right here. Read it again with me. For God was pleased to have what? All, say it like you're up. God was pleased to have what? All, thank you. All His fullness dwell in Him. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. You see, my friends, what you need to understand is that all the fullness of God was in Christ. Now look at uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. If you didn't get it, Paul repeats it again. He says, now remember when I told you Theos in John 1, 1 really wasn't at the... Uh, you see, you've got A, B, and C of John 1, 1. A is in the beginning was the Word. That's A. And the Word was with God. That's B. And C is the Word was God. Those are three sections of that one verse for you to understand when people talk about A, B, and C and and one verse. You get it? Okay. When I showed you in part C that Theos could not be the person of God but had to be the substance of God, when I showed you that, I gave you the definition of where that came from, from it missing the article. You all remember that. Now look at how it's said simply. You don't even need to know Greek. You go right here in chapter 2, verse 9. For in Christ... Christ, all the fullness of the deity. You see that? All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Now you get it? See, He's not the Father, but He's the fullness of deity. Because all the Son is, all the Father is, all the Holy Spirit is, is deity. But the Father's not the Son, the Son's not the Spirit, and so forth. They're not each other. But they are all equally the fullness of deity. Praise the Lord. It says right here, for in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. See why hypostatic union, the the hypostasis, the nature of Christ changed when he took on flesh. So now in bodily form, it's all there. And when he rose from the dead, he still has a body. Remember, he said, touch me and see, I'm not a spirit. I eat, I drink. He did that to prove to them that he is the firstborn from among the dead. Representing all of us who will be raised from the dead like Him, being like Him. Hallelujah. It says, for the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. So number one, we learned from the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 2 that God Himself will dwell among the people. When was this fulfilled? It was fulfilled at the birth of Jesus Christ when He came and lived among the people in flesh. And He Himself was the fullness of deity. 
Praise God. Get excited. Now, the second part is verse 11. He says, many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day. It doesn't tell you what day it is, but we assume it's the day when that uh, when the Lord comes and dwells among us. So let's look at the Bible and see if we can see that when the Lord comes and dwells among us, or rather when the Lord comes and dwells among us, are all nations joined to him. Go to Acts chapter one. And I propose to you that when it says that day nations will be joined to you, it's the day after his resurrection. Now that he's been glorified, done the work of redemption for the world. Now that day, and he's still among them, the nations are joined to him. Acts chapter 1 will clarify the purpose of Jesus as he speaks in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So when does Jesus join all nations to him? The day that the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles because that was the fulfillment of all that Jesus did. Now you go to Acts chapter 2 because the fullness of God is still in the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said in John chapter 14 through 16 that when he comes, my father and I will come with him. Why? Because they're inseparable. They're not the same person, but they are inseparable. So where the Holy Spirit is, there is the father and son. And let's see if it is fulfilled on Acts chapter 2. It says, uh, verse uh, 1, the Holy Spirit comes down. Verse 4, they begin to speak in tongues, shikaboomba. Now verse 5, now there was staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from where? Every nation under heaven. The start of the fulfillment of those prophecies comes the day the Holy Ghost comes down and Jesus Christ is glorified. The prophecy was that God would live among His people. The prophecy said that the nations would come to him. Do you see that happening today now, 2,000 years later? Is God still walking among his people? Is he in us by the power of the Holy Spirit? And is he drawing nations to himself? Go to Matthew chapter 28. One of our favorite verses, never can read it enough. This is why the people didn't understand his coming and why he was leaving. It was because he wanted to draw nations to himself before Armageddon. Then Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Verse 19, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. The Trinitarian description right there, verse 20, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always. I'm with you. I'm with you. How is he with them? By the power of the Holy Ghost to the very end of the age. Praise God. Now see that fulfillment. Uh, of what he said in John chapter 16. He said, I will be with you. And we talked about this in church. But to say it for our friends, how can Jesus be with us when he just goes to heaven? He leaves and goes to heaven. How is he with us? Through the person of the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Praise God. Look at uh, chapter 16, verse 5. Now I'm going to him who sent me. So Jesus is talking to Son. He says, I'm going to him who sent me. Who is that? The Father. Yet none of you ask me where I'm going because I've said these things. You are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth. Listen right here. It is good for you that I'm going away unless I go away. The counselor, King James says, comforter, meaning the same thing in the Greek, parakletos. It says he will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And where does the Holy Spirit dwell? 
He dwells within us. Looking at verse 15, all that belongs to the Father is mine. So the Father gives everything to the Son. And then he says, and that is why I said the Spirit will take what is mine and make it known to you. So the Father says, Son, I want you to have everything that's mine. Fullness of deity inside of Jesus in bodily form. Then Jesus says to them, it's, I've walked among you. I've, I've uh, been here. I've fulfilled the prophecy. Now I'm going to be glorified, go to heaven, and I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And I will be with him and he will be in you. And all that is mine that I got from the Father, I'm going to give to him to give to you to draw in the nations. Woo! Come on, somebody. And so what does that mean to us today? Well, it means that Jesus kept the prophecies of the Old Testament and was God with us, Emmanuel. And that today, through the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, He remains God with us. And then this last prophecy is being fulfilled that all nations are being drawn to Him right now. And you say to yourself, where the end, it says, be still before the Lord. And you might ask yourself, when does that happen? Let me show you right now. Go to the book of Revelations. In the King James, it says, be silent before the Lord. And when does that great day, that time of silence happen? Go to Revelation chapter 8. I've broken down the verses. Zechariah chapter 2, verse 10, Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming to you. I will live among you, declares the Lord. We've learned that that means that Jesus Christ lived among us. Verse 11, Many nations will be joined in that day and will become my people. I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. That is the coming of the Holy Spirit after the glorification of Jesus and nations being drawn to Him right now. And then in verse 13, it says, Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because He has roused Himself from His holy dwelling. That is saying, it's over. Game over. It's time to end it. He's been uh, waiting to come back. Now he is going to come back. Look at Revelation chapter 8. When he opened the seventh seal, verse 1. Come on, somebody. When he opened the seventh seal, it's like reset. Game over. I'm starting this thing again with my chosen people. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Before the whole thing goes Armageddon. Silence. Could you imagine that? Angels been singing holy, holy, holy before the throne of God ever since eternity. Silence. People been worshiping them all eternity. Silence. Because He is going to take the glory at that moment. And for a half an hour, half an hour, 30 minutes, complete silence in heaven. And then He brings the Sheikah Boomba. Keep reading. And I saw the seven angels who stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayer with, with the prayer of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense came together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hand. Why are these? What are these prayers? These are the prayers of redemption. God save us. God spare us. The, the prayers that the Thessalonians prayed. God, we're suffering. And, 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 and Paul said to them, you will receive vengeance from the Lord. He's coming. He's coming. He will destroy those who have persecuted you. Hold on. These prayers are held. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth and there came peals of thunder, thunder, rumbling flashes of lightning and an earthquake and then all of the destruction comes after that. 
Are you ready for Jesus to come back the second time? Are you ready? Are you ready for Jesus to come back with peals of thunder and lightning? And it almost gives the impression that this incense then turns to the fire that judges the earth. Just something to think about. That our prayers for God to judge those who have wrongly hurt us and persecuted us. Us praying for God to spare us and save us. Those that are suffering in Islamic countries. Those who suffered under the Roman Empire. Those that suffered under communism. All those prayers then turn to the fire that the angels throw upon the earth. You see, God hears every one of our prayers of suffering. God knows every hurt and every pain you and I have suffered. And He will take it in His hands. And He will judge the earth with it. So hold on to the promises of God. I am always encouraged when I read the Old Testament prophets because if God was faithful to them after 4,000 years of waiting to send Jesus the first time, that's how long it took from the time of Adam and Eve and the killing of Cain and Abel and for all of these hopes to be crushed and, and Noah's Ark and all of those things. Thousands of years, 4,000 years for them to wait for Him to come the first time. You and I can be loyal to this Word and wait 2,000 years for Him to come the second time. Because if He kept His Word to Zechariah and to those people and came and lived among us and He came and drew the nations to Himself, then that means He will come again and He will bring us to Himself and we will live with Him in glory and then on this new earth and the new Jerusalem forever where there are no walls but the fire of God and the glory of the Lord. Amen? Praise God. Stand to your feet with me today. Isn't it good just to hear the Word? Let it encourage you today. Some of the points of action that we can take from this lesson today is that we are still fulfilling the prophecy of God in us. The Holy Spirit preaching to the nations. Never forget that is the destiny of every Christian. To preach to the nations. I love the way John Wesley said, I'm going to set my life on fire so everybody can come and watch me burn. Think of your life as a torch for Jesus. Those of you who have taken airplane flights, you come down at night. How does the pilot know how to land? He sees the runway lit up. Places black and darkness. But the lights light the way. See, people are in life looking for a place to land and find rest. The nations are weary and tired of carrying their own burdens of religion. And serving prophets that only serve themselves. And we're called to light the way so they can come to God. So that they can land safely. So that they can be in the kingdom with you and I. And we're not to compare our lights one with another and say, Oh, you know, I'm brighter than Vanessa or Vanessa's brighter than me. No, we are each to do our best for God. And to say, Lord, put me where you want me. Some of you might be placed to light the way in Honduras. Some of you might be placed to light the way in Ohio Park in the inner city. Some of you might be used to light the way in the jail ministry, on the streets. But everywhere you and I are, we are there to light the way. Remember John the Baptist, he said, I am preparing the way of the Lord. Make straight His paths. That is the same anointing that is upon the generation that will see Jesus come. That same John the Baptist, forerunner generation. John the Baptist was a forerunner to Christ. That means he ran out first and Christ came after.
And now instead of having one John the Baptist, now there is a generation of John the Baptist running across the world, running across the earth. Because when Jesus came, He did say, I just came for Israel. I'm just going to walk around these lands. You always wonder, why didn't He go heal people in India? Why didn't He travel to Europe? No, He he did say, I am here for this land. And that's why John the Baptist just went there and prepared the people. But the second coming, He's coming for the nations. So who's going to go prepare Bolivia? Who's going to prepare Uruguay? Who's going to prepare China and Japan and Singapore? In the Philippines, who's going to prepare the way for God to come to those nations? You and me. We're going to go and prepare the way because He's coming. As surely as He came the first time. Let that encourage you today. As surely as He came the first time. He's coming again to be with us. Father God, I thank You that You have given us the Holy Ghost and fire to use us as torches to light the way, O God, for Your return. I pray, Lord, that You will use every one of us, every student of SUM from New Orleans to Shreveport to South uh, Carolina to Winston-Salem, God. Oh, Lord, all around the United States, around the world, our churches and our missionaries. Father God, Your body used us to be missionaries, burning torches for You to be sent out to prepare the way of the Lord. Woo! Jesus! Jesus! Come on, let's just pray that God will use us. Come on, pray the prayer of Isaiah. God, here I am. Send me. I'll go. Oh, Jesus, Jesus. Raise up a generation, Lord. World changers, God. Give us a voice, God, in the wilderness. Crying out to nations, make straight the path of the Lord. Repent and turn to God. God, give us a voice. Give us a voice in the wilderness. The nations are your inheritance, O God. And You dwell in us, O God, and we can have the same power. And we do have the same anointing that You have. You gave it to us through the Holy Ghost. Let signs and wonders follow the preaching of Your Word. O God, let lives be changed. God, let the nations be in awe of Your glory. Come on, give us a revelation of who You are. Of who You are. So we can spread Your message and Your Word to the nations. Jesus, when You came to the earth, You said that You chose disciples to be with You so that You may send them out to preach. Let us never forget our first responsibility is to know You and be with You to make You known. Jesus. You walk among us. You're here, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Where two or three are gathered together in Your name, You are there. Dwell among us. Move in Your power. Oh, Jesus. I will.
attention towards Jesus for these next few moments. Let's just worship Him for who He is. Oh God, You are awesome in this place. You are glorious. Thank You, Lord, for showing us who You are. For letting us see You through a glass dimly. Thank You, God, for taking us from glory to glory as we are led by the Spirit transformed into who You are. You are beautiful. You are awesome. You are glorious in every way. Thank you for coming and being with us. Thank you for being Emmanuel. No matter what trial or trouble we face in life, you are always with us.